Just praise God for that. Yes, man. <clears throat> so thankful for God's kindness there, and uh, we'll certainly continue to pray and look forward to all that God is going to do. Hey, grab your Bible, turn to Romans 7, and just keep it open. I know we've already read the passage uh, in its full context. We're going to look at a few uh, verses as we journey throughout the entire chapter of uh, chapter 7. So we'll, uh, we'll walk through that. I know it sounds like a long sermon, and that's because I think it is. I think I went over in both services, and there is no time limit on this one. So you're in for it. Um, I'm, I'm joking. I'll be mindful of our time. But there's a lot to cover, but I think it's necessary for us uh, to cover chapter 7 in its entirety so that we uh, are able to make the most sense of what Paul is trying to say. Now, the last five weeks you have experienced incredible preaching. Can we just praise God for those guys that have preached? Yes, I'm grateful uh, for each of them. They have each done just a tremendous, tremendous job. Uh, man, I'm, I'm humbled to be able to stand up here and, and preach after them. They've just done an incredible job. But as we know, all good things must come to an end. And today, uh, I'm back in the pulpit, but I'm grateful to be here. You know, it matters not so much who the person is that is preaching uh, behind the pulpit. It's the message that is powerful and potent, and so we're grateful to God for that. I do want to encourage you in one thing before we jump uh, right in. If you—I I know that it's hard to be here every week, especially with school starting and people have things that they have to attend. Sometimes work pulls you away. If you can't be here each week, make sure you're catching up. Uh, not because I want you to necessarily listen to me or anyone else that's preaching, but the message is what matters. And so it's critical for you to understand the book of Romans in its entirety. Um, each message builds off of the, the other one. And so make sure that you are catching up. We've got a podcast you can download. Just go to Apple and search, however you do that. Um, we also have a church app. Uh, you can look on our website, but just make sure that you're following along and you're catching up on those sermons, be it during your workout or drive to work or whatever it may be. Uh, it's going to help you tremendously. Even if you've missed some in Romans, go back. Uh, go back and listen because, again, it all builds um, off, of, off of one another. And the book in its entirety is so critical for us to understand. But if we are looking, and we are, at Romans chapter 7, specifically today, the question that I've attempted to answer this week as I was studying uh, is, man, what's the overall theme of Romans 7? What are we trying to extract from Romans 7 is kind of a, a, a common overall theme. Well, I read a little article, and this article I thought captured quite well uh, what the chapter is about. Let me share it with you. There's a story that a British newspaper sent out a probe to famous authors of the day. And they asked one simple question, but weighty question. So simple in, in terms of uh, length and just a short question, but there's a loaded question. And the question is this, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? Now, a famous writer, G.K. Chesterton, responded. And his response is quite simple, but also loaded. This is what he said. He said, dear sir, comma, I am, period. And then he signed it, yours, G.K. Chesterton. I don't know if you know much about G.K. Chesterton, but he was a popular Christian philosopher and apologist of his day. How could he, one who was deemed a 
fully committed follower of Christ, how could he say that he is the problem with the world? As a believer, as a follower of Jesus, how could he do this? Well, he's not the first to do this. As a matter of fact, I believe Romans 7, we, in Romans 7, we see Paul capturing this same thought. For example, he does something very similar in anticipating some pushback on his teaching on the law. Uh, he was being accused of disparaging the law earlier in Romans, and so he addressed that. And here in chapter 7, he said a few things like this in verse 4. He said that Christians have died to the law. That could have been misconstrued as disparaging. Uh, verse 6, he said that Christians are no longer serving the old way. Uh, they, are, they are walking in the Spirit of God. That could have been seen as disparaging of the law. And so in effect, the Apostle Paul is getting ahead of this. And he's saying, hey, you want to know what the problem is? The problem's not my view of the law, because the law in and of itself is above reproach. It's not sinful. The problem's not the law, Paul says, in essence. The problem is me. Now, my teaching, Paul would say, on the law is not a reflection of what the law is like. It is a reflection of what my heart is like. So if the likes of the apostle Paul, who is seen as one of the greatest Christian missionaries in all the Bible who wrote majority of the New Testament. If we look at him, we look at someone who's a giant in our faith like G.K. Chesterton, and they're saying that they are the problem. How, how do we process that as Christians on this side of heaven? I think a good way to, to, to capture this for the believers in the room is when you are saved, you are saved into a struggle. Aren't you glad you came to church today? When you're saved, you're saved into a struggle. What is the struggle? Well, the struggle is, who am I as a new creation in Christ and as one who's still contending with the spirit of the flesh? How am I to reconcile the two? It's a struggle. It's a conflict. It's difficult. It's challenging. And so this is exactly where we find ourselves in Romans chapter 7 as Paul begins to unpack kind of his own viewpoint of this. And we're going to look at this in blocks. So first of all, uh, look at the block of verses 1 through 6. And we see Paul making just a clear point here. And he's using an illustration of marriage to do so. And his point is this. He's saying the law has authority over you only so long as you live. And he uses this marital illustration to say if a spouse dies, then you're no longer bound to the vow. You're free to marry Another, I think it's important in verse 4 to realize that Paul's point here is not a full discourse on what constitutes divorce, premise, the premise for divorce, or what a marital relationship ought or ought not to look like. He's not teaching on marriage. What he's doing here is he's teaching on this freedom from the law, and the way to be free from the law is to die uh, to self and to live in the gospel, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment, but his point is clear that death ends the obligation to the law. Now remember this as we go throughout the message today. In Christ, we are free from the law, and we are now enabled by the Spirit of God in us to live for Him. But the moral demands that are expressed in the Mosaic Law, we as Christians, filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, the dead to the law, 
we fulfill those moral obligations. Why? Because God called us, and this is part of our mission because we can't think of a better mission statement than to just extract it from the word, but to love God and to love people. So we live out this law. We're living it out in practice because God has given us this spirit that has called us to love God and to love others. So we are pursuing a greater sense of holiness, if you will. Here's why. Because we are not saved from the outside in. We're not trying to do all the right things to somehow make ourselves good enough to do. No, the Spirit of God changes us from the inside out. So Paul is saying, yes, we're dead to the law, but man, the Spirit of God lives in us, and we are to live for God, But we need to make very clear that Paul has, throughout the book of Romans, made the point that we're not saved. We can't be saved by our own works. The law cannot save us. That's not the purpose of the law. Ephesians speaks to this. Very popular verse. You probably know it very well. Uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we are saved by grace. Paul speaks of this at length in Romans chapters 5 and 6. Through faith in Christ Jesus, not by our own efforts, not by our own works. So in verses five and six, we see what God's objective is with the law. So here's what God had in mind. Here's number one, to expose our sins. The law is meant to expose our sins. If you look a little bit past five and six, seven, you look at verse seven, he says, for example, as he kind of unpacks uh, what the law is, he says the law is not sin by no means, um, yet if it not been for the law, what does he say at the end of this or the middle of this? He says, I would not have known sin. The law exposes our sin. A good example of this is if you are driving 70 miles an hour in a 35 mile per hour speed zone. The law has stated by the signage that you're supposed to go 35, man, but you were going 70. And so the sign and the ticket that you received shows you that you have broken the law. It exposes the sin. All right, here's the second thing. It also exposes our sinfulness. So the law exposes our sins, but it also exposes our sinfulness. Verse 5, for example, says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, and then what does the next phrase say? Aroused by the law. The law rouses our rebellious nature into action. I've used this before, but if your mama says, hey, we got a new jar in the house. It's called a cookie jar. And I just put fresh baked chocolate chip cookies in the jar. Don't touch them. Now, I'm the type of kid growing up who would have said, okay, I would have never noticed the cookie jar. But now that you told me the cookie jar is there, as soon as I get an opportunity, I'm now roused into action I'm going to open that jar. Y'all know what I'm saying? This is what the law does. The law exposes our sin, but it also exposes our sinfulness. And this is quite important. Now, looking through the next block of verses 7 through 12, we need to know a couple of things just as we set this up. Paul had heard the law before. As a matter of fact, he heard it read in the synagogue every Sabbath. He was a Jew among Jews, man. He knew every jot and tittle of the law. He was well acquainted with every letter of the law. 
Further than that, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was like the, man, one of the best rabbis. He was known to be the best of the best. And Paul, who was Saul at the time, sat at his feet. He learned from him. I liken it to, one of my favorite pastors in the world is H.B. Charles in Jacksonville, Florida. And I think about the people that get to sit under his preaching. And I think, man, you're sitting under the best of the best. This is amazing. And this is what Saul got to experience with Gamaliel. He sat under the best of the best. And he knew every ounce of the law. But verse 9 says something quite fascinating. Verse 9 says he was, hear this, alive without the law. In the world, does that mean? Well, all of the book of Romans is challenging. Romans 7 in particular is quite challenging. But what do we see here? We see Paul saying that he is alive without the law. That could be challenging, but when we break it down, it really begins to make sense. Here's the meaning of what Paul is saying here. The meaning is that the law had never came to the home of his heart and to his conscience. So the law never made it to his heart or to his conscience so the effectual work of the law to expose sin and to expose sinfulness there was a time Paul says that I was alive without it yeah I knew it I studied it I had it memorized but I was alive without the law of God you know I wonder how many of us today how many of us today, we are going about our daily business and living our life, but the law of God has just really not done its work in us. Yes, we may know that there's this religious form of law, and yes, Romans talks about it being written on our hearts, the fabric of our hearts, but how many of us go to sleep and we sleep like a baby in the thick of our sin? I mean, we are steeped to our throat in sin, yet we never dream that we've done anything wrong. And, and the reality is we are living alive without the law and this is what paul is explaining about himself you know the bible says in psalm 14 1 the fool says in his heart there is no god there are so many that are walking about today living as if god does not exist like he's not holy and like we have not broken his laws and so what we have done is we have dulled our conscience and it's not something necessarily that we have done it's a result of the fall of man and that dullness of conscience causes us to say well i'm not as bad as those people over there and all these people over here are doing all the things that i'm doing so i'm in common place we are in common ground so i'm justified what i've done it's fine I can make these decisions and live however I want to live. Paul says there was a day when I was persecuting Christians, the movement of the church, but I had this dullness of conscience. I slept like a baby at night because the law of God had not exposed my sin, even though I knew it intellectually, which is important for us. That part is important for us because this is not just for outliers out there. There is this whole sect of cultural Christians where they just kind of grew up in church culture and it's a part of what you do to go to church and get baptized and all the things and they would even say God loves them but they have not ever experienced that deep need for the atoning work of Christ in their heart they've never felt conviction over sin their own sinfulness they would say that God loves them but they're not at a place where they realize that God loves them because they're wretched sinners in need of a savior and who am I that God would send his son to die for a wretch like me there's a difference in cultural Christianity and one that really knows the Lord there's a difference in Jesus being a nice accessory to our lives and Jesus being a necessity in our lives 
Paul kind of scratches the surface on some of these things. Here's the frightening truth, and J.I. Packer says this often in his book, Knowing God. He says, it is impossible to know, excuse me, it is possible to know much about God without knowing God. It's scary. It's frightening. It's possible to know much about God without knowing God. But praise God, what do we know about Saul? He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he came alive uh, because the law began to do a revealing work in his life as Jesus called him out. He understood, Paul understood, as he's now unpacking the nuances of the law, that there is no sharper tool than the law of God to lance the soul. Look at verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and uh, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so he's saying here that I have been stirred by the law, and my sinfulness has been exposed. And there was a time when I realized that I had to die to, to what? To I, to self, to the old man, to my selfish pride. The hopes of the past life have now died, and I'm buried with Christ and raised to walk in a newness of Life. When we get to this point, we now understand what the gospel is all about and where our salvation lies. And I would say through Paul's writings, he understood this so well. Here's a key point. If you have been slain by the law, God can make you alive in the gospel. If you'll trust in him. If you've ever felt the weight of the conviction of sin and you've been slain by the law, listen, you can become alive in Christ if you'll trust in the good news of Jesus. Paul knew all of this. He knew all of this. He continues and says, For many, sin does not appear to be sin. There are so many, in verse 13 he says this, sin does not appear to be sin. And he says, we want to show this. We want to show sin to be Sin, because there are so many times in our life, even as believers, where we just excuse sin and we don't look at sin to be sin in our lives. And we are blinded to that. And there's a dullness there, there's a darkness there. And we need God to shine his glorious light onto that so that we can see the areas of our life where we are compromising. I'm not speaking of legalism here. I'm not trying to take a fine-tooth comb and scrub everyone's life and make sure that we're doing all the things the same way as robots. It's crazy. No, what I am saying is we are to walk in the Spirit of God, and are there some things in your life right now where you're compromising? And God's light needs to be shown in that. It needs to be seen as sin. Here's why, because sin is dark. It's dark. You know, those who live in a mine all of their lives, they don't know how dark the mine is until a light is shown. And there may be some dark areas in our life, even as believers, we need God's light shone. We all unwittingly allow ourselves into practices which clear light would show to be sinful. Show to be sinful. Uh, a couple examples of this from history is John Newton. You may have heard of John Newton. He was an abolitionist of slavery. He was one that... Uh, really came against and fought hard to end the cruelties of transatlantic slavery. He also wrote a hymn that you may be familiar with. It's entitled, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I don't know if you know this about John Newton, but there was a time when he professed to be a believer that he was a captain 
of one of those ships that hauled slaves back and back into. Not only that, he was a wealthy man and he invested heavily in the slave trade. But there was a time in his life when God shined a light onto that darkness. Come on, somebody. And God revealed to him that what he was doing was egregious. It was sinful. It was against the Lord's holy standard and the image of God is being marred and skewed in the lives of so many because of this sin. And so John Newton repented and continued on for the rest of his days trying to end the cruelties of transatlantic slavery. Another example is Corrie ten Boom. You may have heard of Corrie ten Boom. Uh, she was a Dutch Christian woman who helped alongside of her other family uh, members who helped to uh, hide Jews who were escaping the persecution of uh, the Nazi regime and, and, and during the Holocaust and World War II. And she worked really hard to do this with her family, but they were caught. And her and her family were sent to a concentration camp where her sister would later die. Well, Corrie ten Boom uh, survived, but she went through some terrible, terrible, dark, dark days while in the concentration camp. Years later, as she's a believer sharing her testimony in a church, uh, when she finishes, she notices this gentleman walking up to her and he's shaking and there's tears streaming down his face and she recognizes him immediately because he was one of her captors, a Nazi guard who did cruel things to her, begging her for her forgiveness. And she writes extensively about the forgiveness that the Lord led her to extend, but the gentleman himself came to a place where God shined a light on the darkness of his life. You know, perhaps the light of Christ will show us that many habits and customs of our present civilization are egregious, just like slavery, just like the Holocaust. And our grandkids and our great-grandkids will wonder how in the world we could have acted as we have in the midst of it. I've talked about this before you know my own personal testimony on this but abortion which has been labeled the modern day holocaust i think about the reconstruction of the bodies of children i don't say this lightly and calling it normal in the name of gender identity and my aim in speaking of both of those things is not at all to come against the person that's wrestling with that you know my own story around this many of you do if you don't i'm happy to share it with you it's not to go at the person that's wrestling, but we as the church, we as the church, we can't just sit by idly and call these things that are happening okay or normal. We should pray and fast and fast and pray and pray and fast and fast and pray and beg of God to shine his light. Come on. We need to realize that sin scales our eyes. But before we go any further, I want to make very clear, Paul is showing here that this text is not about other people. Paul is not speaking about a group out there who is struggling that needs light shined on them. No, Paul is putting two fingers on his own heart. <laughs> and he's saying, God, shine a light on me because I've got some dark things. And what does he say? If you look at the next block of scripture here in 15 and 20, he says a few fascinating things. First of all, verse 15, he says, I do not understand my own actions. Have you ever been there? I don't know the way why I'm the way that I am. 
I don't understand my own actions. He goes on to say the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing those very things. And he's asking the Lord to open his eyes because he realizes that something's broken in me. Just like G.K. Chesterton, as a believer, said, I'm the problem. Paul here is not speaking of his previous self, Saul, as some would believe. He's speaking of present-day Paul, who's a Christian, a follower of Christ, who's struggling, man. And he's saying, God, help me. If you've struggled and you're in this room and you've struggled, I've got really good news for you. First of all, I know you've struggled because we all have. Here's the good news. You're in the right place. You do not have to fake it here. Why? Because we are all broken people. And if there's a line that we're getting in of broken people, I'll be first. (laughs) I'm messed up, man. Matter of fact, over the last five weeks that I've been preaching other places and, you know, I've still been around here, but I've had time to really reflect and God has revealed to me in that season that I've got some idolatrous things in my own heart and I want that light shined on me. God, reveal those dark things in my heart. I don't want to fake it, God. I want to come to a place in my life where I realize that I'm saved into a struggle. Is Paul denying his responsibility as a sinner when he says this? No, he's recognizing his sinfulness. And he's saying, I need the Spirit of God to work in me. As we'll see later in the, in the latter parts of 20 when he says, thanks be unto God, my deliverer is Jesus Christ. He knows that the impulse of sin comes from the flesh. It doesn't come from the Spirit. Our flesh and our spirit are at war with one another, as verse 18 says. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. I have the desire uh, to do what is right sometimes but not the ability to carry it out. Galatians 5, 17 says, For the desire of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desire of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, and to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Listen, if you're in this Christian thing, you're in a war. You're saved into a struggle. You don't struggle before because you're not worried about your sin. You're not convicted about your sin. But now as a Christian, we are saved into a struggle. We'll struggle the rest of our, our days on this side of heaven. But praise be unto God, the victory's already been won. And we are fighting from victory, not for victory, it's from victory, to gain victory in our todays over the seduction of sin. Our spirit and our flesh is at war. So whether it's drugs or alcohol or anger or pride or pornography or lust, here's what we do. We want freedom so badly as Christians, but we look only to first order change for that freedom because of our own sinfulness. We think that we can fix it, so we promise and we promise and we promise and we promise and we do 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 do all that we can to try to make ourselves get in a position where we've fixed ourselves. But you know what? We need second order change. Only Jesus can fix us. Yes, there's things we must do. Yes, there's resources available to us everywhere. But hear this, we need the Lord to work in us and through us. We can't fix ourselves. We need the Lord to work in and through us to show us where to go and how to get there. You can't promise your way out of this. Why? Because we can't fix ourselves. We are wretched. But God, listen, he is our hope. He is our healer. He is our deliverer. We must look to him first and let him show us where to go. There are so many tools, so many resources that he can point us to that can help us and be a gift to us. And we praise God for that. But hear me, we can't fix ourselves. The Bible, reading the Bible, 
We ought to do it. This is a gift for us. Praying, we ought to do it. It's a communicable gift to us. Fasting, we ought to do it. It's a gift for us. But these are not, uh, you know, things that sanctify us. No, it is God that sanctifies us. These are resources that God allows us to use to know him. The purpose is know him. Get to know him. Die to self and let him do that work in you. Here's our job. Die to self. My job is to die to Zeb every day. So the Spirit of God can be alive and at work in me, and that causes me to run to Him and get to know Him. I'm not using I'm not using these means as okay if I if I read enough or pray enough or fast enough or give enough money now I'm an A plus Christian. No man, it's to get to know the Father. There's a difference there. It's not just about doing the things. It's about knowing Him, and we have to go to Him, and that's where that second order change comes in. Nothing good in our flesh, as verse 18 says. But let me encourage you. Let me uh, prayerfully awaken your hearts a little bit. We know that we have Christ in us. So as we die to ourselves, as we take sin seriously, as we take the gospel seriously, we know that we're not only saved, you know, by grace through faith, you know, to, to have salvation. We're not only saved just for that. Listen, we have the gospel. That's good news for us then at salvation. It's good news for us every day as believers, as followers of Christ. So know that we are saved and praise God for the good news of the gospel that shows us our need for salvation. But we don't just get rid of the gospel at that point. We need the gospel in our lives every single day because we get daily dirt on our feet and the life of the Christian is a life of of daily repentance. We need, not, not for salvation, but we need to every day look to him and trust in him and die to self, take sin seriously, take the gospel seriously. Not just for salvation. Salvation is just the beginning. For the rest of our days, we need the gospel of Christ because the new nature within us compels the old nature to submit. What do we need to do? We've got to be vigilant. Gunpowder is not always exploding, but it's always explosive. And so we have to be vigilant. There's no one in this room that's above sin. There's no one in this room that's above a certain struggle. And by the way, there are many uh, Christians who like to poke fun at people with their particular struggles. And I would just say this to you. It's real easy to talk about sins you don't struggle with. So if you feel like you don't belong or it's not a safe space and people have made you feel that way, just know this. They got their own struggles, man. It's pride. It's self-righteousness. It's all those things. And we've created this bad image, you know, just because we've, we, we've uh, mishandled uh, the gift that God has given us in being a, a real, genuine, authentic community. Christians have mishandled that. But let me just say to you that in Christ, we can come before him without all the fakeness, with great authenticity, and we can sit before him and realize that untainted morality vanished in Eden. Uh, We struggle. We're not saved by grace and then sanctified by our own efforts. We need the gospel every single day. We need it now. Every person. There's not one in here that's got it figured out. All of us. We need the gospel ourselves. Swindoll says it this way, as the moon reflects the light of the sun, yet has no light of its own, so we shall shine with God's radiance as we live in proximity to his son. So we get to know his son. We get to know Jesus. We run to him. We don't run away from him. So look at what Paul says, last couple of verses, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's the deliverer, church? Jesus. Is it that simple, pastor? You spent all this time just to tell me that I'm to run to Jesus? Yes. Yes. 
It's exactly what Paul wants to show you is you're not alone. I struggle. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I, I don't. Uh, it, it's a mess. So who's my deliverer? What do I do? How do I handle this? Well, he talks about a thorn in Corinthians and God says, my grace is enough for you. And here in Romans, he says that Jesus is my deliverer. His grace is enough. I can look to him and the only way to overcome this is to die to who I am because less of me is more of Jesus and to watch him work and move in and through my life in a manner in which he, only he can. <laughs> wow. So I say it this way to you. My kids, um, the, in particular the two youngest, nine and six, when they get hurt, two little girls, I love that they don't run away from me. They look for their daddy when they get hurt and they run to their daddy. And I love it because I hug on them and say, honey, get, let's get a Band-Aid. You, you want me to kiss it to make it better? Can I just hold you for a minute? I love those moments that they take to say, I'm hurting. There's my daddy. I ain't gonna run from him. I don't care what's around me. I'm sprinting to him. I love that. We, brothers and sisters, should be sprinting to Christ. I don't know what you have going on today. Brother and sister, maybe you are a mess today. Perhaps your marriage is struggling. Perhaps there are some addictions that are just eating your lunch. Maybe you're bitter. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're jealous. Maybe your pride is getting the best of you. Maybe your image of self is so skewed, you feel worthless. Maybe you feel lonely. Maybe you feel defeated. Maybe you feel like no one else in the world understands. And maybe you've asked the question, who will deliver me? And maybe you've looked to a lot of things to deliver you. But you found all of them to be fleeting, temporary, band-aids over bullet wounds. I remind you of what Paul says in the latter parts of this text when he says, who will deliver me? It's Jesus. Thanks be unto God, Jesus is my deliverer. Today, maybe you're here and you're just carrying a weight on your shoulders. You've been faking it. You put on a smiley face and you've gone on because you're strong, you're tough, you can handle it. But you know really on the inside that there's an implosion that's coming because a release valve is needed. And what we see here is Paul is saying, there's times in my life I don't even know what's going on and I think to myself, why do I, why do, I do the things I do? Why am I the way that I am? Who is my deliverer? It's Jesus. And there's some really good words. As a matter of fact, some of your favorite Bible verses are coming up in Romans chapter 8. That's why the full context is needed. But suffice it for us today to say this. If you have some things in your life that are a struggle right now, just know you're saved into a struggle. Your flesh and your spirit are at war. And I pray today that you will die to yourself and that you'll give the Lord Jesus every room of your heart. Not most rooms, every room. Not pieces of yourself, not parts of yourself, not most of yourself, all of yourself. You'll surrender to him. We don't make him Lord, he's Lord, but have we surrendered to his lordship in our life? Is he leading us? Or are we just still doing whatever feels right, whatever feels good? Whatever that looks like for you today. My message is very simple. Echoing the words of Paul, Jesus is our deliverer, and you must look to him. 
So we're going to sing this last song, and it's a, a song reminiscent of John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, who saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, but now <laughs> I see. Today is a day where you can experience freedom. You know, the only time to come to Jesus is not at the point of salvation. We ought to go to him every day. We need him every day. So will you do that this very hour as we sing this song, will you surrender all to him? I'm gonna ask you to stand with me as I pray for us. God, thank you for today. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, that you speak through your word to us. You use the foolishness of preaching to accomplish this purpose. Lord, this is so not about the person delivering the message ever. And sometimes we can get so caught up in that. Lord, this is about you. And Lord, I pray that your light will shine in the darkest crevices of our heart. Lord, so that freedom can be had, so that we can be restored and renewed. Lord, we know it's a struggle, but we know the victory's already been won. And we know that we can look to you. And we thank you for that truth. So for the one here that's just walking in the heaviness of that weight even now, I pray that they walk out a lot lighter, knowing that they're not alone that we all are struggling, but we have joy in our hearts because the victory's been won and you are our deliverer. So help us, God, to die to self and help us to trust in your sanctifying work in our hearts. In the powerful name of King Jesus and all God's people said,